Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Lock up your libraries if you like, but there is no gate, no lock, no bolt that can set upon the freedom of my mind. Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And I'm speaking to Associate Professor Sandrine Burgess about Mary Wollstonecraft. And welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Can you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Okay, so, well, I'm French, but I studied philosophy in London and Leeds in the UK. I work mostly on 18th century women political philosophers, so obviously Wollstonecraft, but also the women of the French Revolution at the moment. So I'm doing work on Sophie Gauchy, who was Condorcet's wife, Manon Roland and Olam de Gouge. So I'm currently trying to come up with a book on these three women, and I'm also editing a big volume called The Wollstonecraftian Mind for Routledge. That's a huge 40-chapter book with contributions from people from all over the world. And I'm working with uh, Alan Coffey and Eileen Hornbotting on this. And also, I mean, I probably should say I'm working at the moment in, in Turkey at the University of Bilkent in Ankara. So what was it that first inspired your interest in studying Mary Wollstonecraft? Oh, well, that, that's actually quite funny. So I didn't, I didn't encounter any women philosophers from the past until I was in my mid-30s. Probably part of the reason was because my PhD was on Plato, so that didn't help. I mean, there was plenty of women doing philosophy in antiquity, but we don't really have any texts, or very few texts by them, so it's much harder to work on them. But then when I started working at Bilkent, and I was teaching on this big service course on social and political philosophy, someone, and I think that was my husband, who's in the same department, complained that we weren't teaching any women authors. And then he went on to suggest that we had Wollstonecraft's Vindication of the Rights of Women, a program. And I'd really not heard of her before. So my first thought was that, isn't that just the mother of Mary Shelley? She's really a philosopher. Uh, and, of course, I didn't say that out loud at the time because I didn't want to sound ignorant, especially as I was the only woman teaching on the program. So what I did is I started reading The Vindication of the Rights of Women, and I, I fell in love with that book. And after a while, I decided that the best way to really get to know it was to write about it. So I wrote an article about the parallels of uh, Wollstonecraft's accounts of women's miseducation and sense theory of adaptive preferences. And then I put in a proposal for a guidebook on the vindication for Routledge. And I went to a conference that was organized by Karen Green, and, and I met other people interested in Wollstonecraft there. 
And basically, I just I just fell into it, and I met a lot of people who'd worked on her for eight years, and, and people who were just beginning to get interested in her as well. We we sort of ganged up together, and, and we've been having conferences and editing volumes, and and even a cluster of uh, articles in Hypatia. So it's taken off really quickly, but basically, even 15 years ago, I knew very little about her. Could you tell us about Mary Wollstonecraft's background? Yes, yeah, so she was from a, a middle-class background. She was born in 1759 in, in London, and things could have gone very, very differently for her. She could have been given her background. She could have been brought up respectably in London and educated indifferently, like many women at her time, and then married off at 20. But that didn't happen because basically her father was an alcoholic and a gambler, and he lost all their money and, and kept getting the family to move in order to escape his debts. He was also a violent man, and, and, and perhaps as a consequence that her, Wollstonecraft's mother didn't actually have much time for her daughter or energy. So Wollstonecraft basically educated herself in whatever way she could, borrowing from friends' libraries. Uh, she went to school a little bit in Yorkshire, but not for very long. So she was very much self-taught. When she turned 18, she, she got fed up with the whole thing, and she, she left home, and she started working for a living. And then over the next 20 years, she worked as a school headmistress, a ladies' companion, a governess, a seamstress, a war journalist, a reviewer, a travel writer. And so she, she, did, she did basically everything that she could do for money and supported herself and her extended family until she died in... Um, 97, so she died very young before she turned 39, and she died giving birth to her second child, who in fact was Mary, she turned out to be Mary Shelley later on. She died of septicemia. And so she was she was a writer, of course, obviously a philosopher. She, When she was in her early 20s, she moved to a village of rational dissenters of North London, in North London, in uh, Newington Green. There she made friends with uh, the leader of that community, Richard Price, and he encouraged her to write and introduced her to publisher, Johnson. And, and she, she, became, she became a very famous writer very quickly. And between 1790 and 92, when she wrote The Vindication of the Rights of Woman, in 93, she moved to Paris to, be, to write letters about the revolution. So she arrived there in the middle of the terror, uh, she didn't speak very good French. She probably had a very hard time, but then she met a man who became her lover, Imli, and she had a, a child by, by him, a, a daughter, Fanny, who died in her 30s, who committed suicide. Then she she went back to London, found out that uh, Imli was not really waiting for her, but moved in with some other woman. So she got very depressed, she attempted suicide. And, and to make her feel better, he decided that he would send her off to Scandinavia, on a tour of Scandinavia. So that wasn't really tourism. It was, um, it was really interesting, actually. He, he was dealing in silver. He was, he was getting, buying silver of the French aristocrats and exchanging it for food and then smuggling the silver out and making a lot of money out of it. And one of his silver shipments had gotten lost in Scandinavia somewhere, and he sent her off with a, a letter uh, from his attorney to ask her to investigate on his behalf. And so she went there with her toddler and her French maid, and uh, she investigated. 
and, and she wrote a bunch of uh, very beautiful letters from Sweden, Denmark, and Norway. William Godwin, back in England, read those letters and basically fell in love with her. They were introduced when she got back, and they got married shortly after she became pregnant with uh, Mary, her second daughter. And then she gave birth and she died. So they didn't enjoy that marriage for more than a few months. Oh, that was a that was a shame. What were her opinions on inequality, respect, and love? Okay, so uh, her views on on personal relationships were very much the product of her political views. So she was she was a, a philosophical republican, and that means that she adhered to the revival of the woman's concept of freedom that the French revolutionaries, for instance, were trying to put into practice. She thought that freedom or independence was the first prerequisite for any relationship, and that's whether it was private or political. So tyranny, the arbitrary handling of power over someone, she thought was the true enemy of freedom, and that applied directly to the condition of women who were always at the mercy of fathers and husbands in the 18th century. So even if a woman got lucky and uh, she wasn't forced into a bad marriage, she was still dependent on the goodwill of a man who could always change, of course. So no woman was truly independent and no relationship could really flourish. So she put that until, until there was a relationship of equality, then you couldn't have respect or love, basically. Yeah, now you, you spoke about her view on marriage, but it was quite unique, wasn't it, for the time? Uh, she, had, so she had a lot of views on marriage. And I think, so I think about that question, I think the easiest way to say it is that there was one view that she uniquely didn't share with her contemporaries, namely that women owed obedience to their husbands. She didn't, she didn't believe that was true. She believed that a good marriage could only work on a basis of respect and equality so that any hint of dependence whatsoever would make that impossible. Now, she also felt that marriage had to be grounded on friendship rather than sexual attraction. And that's because she thought that it was easier to respect a friend than to respect someone you just had the hot for, basically. And she thought, well, sexual attraction is going to go away, but friendship engenders respect, and that's going to last, and that's going to develop. So it's a better basis for, for a marriage. But her notion of friendship was very far from it. It wasn't cold, and it wasn't uninteresting. And she got a really undeserved bad reputation for saying this. People said, oh, she doesn't understand love. She just thinks that it's about, you know, people kind of reading books together. And there was a lot more to that. And I think probably she was drawing on notions of friendships from Plato and Aristotle. And so these, these really want uh, cold kind of friendships that are much closer to what we think of as love. And there's a couple of really nice articles about this in... Um, a volume that Alan Coffey and I edited for Oxford University Press. And so there's one on love and friendship by Sylvana Tomasili and one on Aristotelian friendship by Nancy Kendrick. So I, I recommend anyone looks at this if they want to find out about what she had to say about friendship. What were Mary Wollstonecraft's views on children's rights and animal ethics? Well, when she... When the, Vindication of the Rights of Men and the Vindication of the Rights of Women came out, and at the same time there was uh, Thomas Paine's Rights of Man. Um, there, there was this uh, Platonist philosopher, Thomas Taylor, who wrote a parody 
called A Vindication of the Rights of Brutes. And in that, and in that work, he made jokes about, he said that, well, if basically, if rights are going to be given to peasants and to women, we might as well give rights to children and to animals. So that was, that was a big joke at the time. Now, Wollstonecraft actually wouldn't have objected very strongly to that. I think she took the idea that parents oughtn't to be tyrants to their children and that children should develop as independent beings very seriously. And a large part of the educational program that she proposes in, in several of her books on education was based on respect for animals as well. So I think she would have been quite, uh, even though she didn't herself formulate uh, any arguments about the rights of children or animals, I think she would have been very sympathetic to any kind of ethical theory that talked about that. And again, so, uh, here I want to recommend another paper in the Oxford volume, one by Eileen Hornbotting, where she talks exactly about that. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking to Associate Professor Sandrine Burgess about Mary Wollstonecraft. How did Mary Wollstonecraft view the properties of anti-slavery? Yes, so I think it's important to, to distinguish between two strands of what Wollstonecraft had to say about slavery. The first is uh, the typical Republican rhetoric, which is to say that to be free is not to be a slave, so not to be dependent on the goodwill of a master. But that doesn't necessarily entail abolitionism, and it certainly didn't for the Romans. Uh, on the other hand, Wollstonecraft also, she was also around at a time when slave narratives were being published, and she probably heard a, a talk by Equiano Olado, who was a freed slave who traveled around Britain giving talks to abolitionist groups. And it's also likely that she reviewed his, his own biography, his own autobiography. So she was familiar with arguments against slavery, and she was part of a group that, that was fighting that was fighting for abolitionism. So, and that, that group was the rational dissenters, her friends in North London, who they were very active in the anti-slavery movement, and also the friends she made in Paris, the Girondins, tended to be the ones who were anti-slavery. But she said very little about actual slavery, and perhaps given that she died at 38, we can say that she just didn't have the time to turn to it. Could you describe her conception of rights? So I, I think I want to answer, well, I, I, I couldn't really. And that's because it's, it's a really it's a difficult question because despite the titles of both her vindications, the rights of men and the rights of women, she doesn't actually spend much time discussing rights. Now, at some point in the second vindication, she says that she's going to discuss rights in the second volume. But then she died before she could write that volume. So again, I'd like to say, well, there's, there's somebody who's an expert on this, and that's uh, Ireland Hornbotting, and ask her, because she, she might have something to say. But I, I don't want to, because I don't, think, I don't think she actually wrote about them very much. So, so I pass on that one, I think. Oh, it, was, it was just such a loss to the world that she died so young, wasn't it? And it really was. It yeah. really was. She, she could have written so much more after the age of 38. 
And especially the circumstances that she, you know, she died um, under because giving birth to a child, because my next question is going to be, what were her approaches to motherhood? So, so there's a few people actually find her problematic because of her approaches to, to motherhood. She, she thought motherhood was really important. The, she, she describes it, she talks about it as a, a grand duty or a sacred duty. And then she makes pronouncements like a, a woman who doesn't breastfeed her children doesn't deserve the title of citizen. So she might have seemed a bit oppressive to women who didn't consider themselves to be very good mothers or, or to find mothering particularly easy. And then she found it, she found it quite easy. Apparently she was... Um, she was able to carry on with writing her big volume, The French Revolution, while living in poverty in the north of France, looking after her baby daughter all by herself. So, and then she was enjoying it as well. So she, she was a natural at motherhood, but ma- many of us aren't. Uh, on the other hand, she makes it very clear that becoming a mother isn't a duty. And, and she says that women should have other professional options, much like men, and that starting a family should only be one option. And, and she also emphasizes that fathers have duty and that if they fail to fulfill them, then they shouldn't expect women to play their part. Uh, and the father's duty well, is to be home when he's not at work, to be sober, faithful to his wife, and to spend time with uh, the children. So just before she died, she started to write a little book for her daughter, Fanny, who was then born out of wedlock from her Peruvian-American lover, in which she modeled parenting on the example of herself and her husband, Godwin, and it's very clear from that that she expects both parents to share equally in the responsibility of caring for the child. It's a very touching little book where she, when she talks about, you know, well, if mother is asleep with a headache and you want to play ball, go and ask father. And uh, don't disturb mother when she's working. And if father's feeling sick, don't make too much noise. And so it's, it's very touching. And, and then, of course, she died just a few months afterwards. Um, other than that, she also had a, a few very what we would call natural ideas about motherhood. She thought that uh, midwives, for instance, should attend a birth rather than a male doctor. And she was quite angry that the French were beginning to replace their midwives with with, uh, male doctors. And she was also in favor of breastfeeding. Now, the alternative was not bottle feeding, mind you, but it was sending out the baby to live with a wet nurse for a number of years. Uh, And she thought that a mother should be able to manage looking after a baby and work at the same time or at least go back to work as soon as the children were old enough. So in that sense, she was very modern, and but perhaps a little demanding for her contemporaries. Perhaps some of her views could have come from her own childhood, which wasn't a very happy one, and with, well, neither of her parents were very good parents, really, were they? Well, they seemed to be very terrible parents, and her father was basically a violent drunk, you know, lost all the family's money by gambling. And her mother was, well, she was, uh, she was a victim of domestic violence, so maybe we shouldn't judge her too harshly, but Wollstonecraft said that she had no interest in looking after her or educating her and that she only really had any energy for, for her sons, but had no interest in her daughters. Um, so she wasn't, she wasn't well brought up, her parents weren't really model parents and everything that she learned about motherhood she learned by herself 
So she had a couple of brothers, did she? Were they older or younger? She had so she had one older brother who inherited from his grandfather what was left of the family's money. She had, I think, a younger brother whom she basically looked after. She made sure that he had the money he needed to go into the army. And I believe he may have uh, immigrated to Australia. So not far from Sydney, I think there's a, a place called Wollstonecraft. There's definitely a train station called Wollstonecraft, and I think that's uh, because it is, it's, it's a trace of her brother's family, I think. Yeah, so that, that's when I think that's where her younger brother immigrated. And she, she also had two sisters that she was a bit closer to. She lived with them. In London, they founded a school together, friends, Fanny Price, Lord, sorry. And later on, the sisters uh, rescued her daughter, Fanny, after she was dead, and, and, and looked after her, but not, not terribly well, because she still ended up committing suicide, because she was all alone. And, and that was it. She was, but both sisters were looked after financially by Wollstonecraft for a fairly long time. Responsible financially for the, the whole family, basically. How were Mary Wollstonecraft's philosophy relevant to modern day philosophy? I think, I think in many ways. So feminists sometimes turn back from her because they think of her as a, a, a middle class only feminist. I think that's unfair. Definitely, Wollstonecraft addressed middle-class women in her book, in her vindication, but that wasn't because she only cared about helping them. It's because she thought they were the only ones who were in a position to listen to her arguments and do something about them. And that was because, uh, of course, the, the poor women weren't in a position even to buy the book, let alone try and understand the arguments and, and do something about them. They were just too poor and, and too busy working. And the upper-classes women, on the other hand, were twisted already by, by the culture which made women not want to be free. So she thought, if I address my arguments to middle-class women, I've actually got a chance of bringing about changes for everyone. So I think that's why it's unfair to, to reject her feminism on the grounds of it being bourgeois feminism or something like that. The other way I think that she's relevant to modern-day philosophy is being done now is for the, the revival of republicanism that's been going on since well, since the end of the 20th century, I guess. And I think reading Wollstonecraft is a really good way to start introducing women in the canon for that tradition. So feminists are sometimes a bit iffy about republicanism because traditionally it was a very male sort of political theory with big emphasis on participation, which meant usually that women had to stay home and look after the kids when men went out to do the politics. Now, having Wollstonecraft as part of that tradition means that we can begin to see how women can fit in, and I think that's quite important. But, I mean, there's all sorts of other ways in which we can reclaim her and, and make her play a role in, in contemporary philosophy. Yeah, well, when you, you take the time that she was living, I mean, and you look at her views on certain subjects like like children and animal ethics 
and even marriage. I mean, she was really way ahead of her time, wasn't she? I think I think she was. I think she was in many ways. Although, I mean, we've got to bear in mind that these times were, were, were uh, they were revolutionary times, right? So, so a lot of people were having new revolutionary views, and the, I think maybe what's unique about her in that sense is that she was she was at the time revolutionary, and then she kind of disappeared from circulation for quite a long time because. So what happened is after she died, her husband, Godwin, wrote a biography in which he said everything about her that she might have kept secret in order to be, not to ruin her reputation. But he didn't. He talked about her affair with Emily, her child out of wedlock. He talked about the fact that she attempted suicide twice. And then when people read that, they didn't want to have anything to do with her anymore. And so her books weren't reprinted, and people no longer read her or talked about her. So even though it's quite likely that John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor read her and were influenced by her, they never mentioned her, because it just wasn't done. You didn't want to be associated with her for a long time. Mm, yeah, that's that's quite sad, and it's a really good thing that she has come back into back into study. I think so conversation yeah. yeah definitely so do you have any future study plans within this field yes so i think i mentioned earlier i'm working at the moment on editing a very big volume for routledge with alan coffee and island on botting and it's called the wollstonecraft in mind and it's going to have sections about her philosophy sections about each of her books sections about her influences and sections about about her relevance as well. So that that's really exciting. We're also organizing a mini-conference around that at the Boston APSA in, in September, in this coming September. And the title of the conference is going to be Wulapalooza 2, because we had Wulapalooza 1 last September in San Francisco. Oh, sounds excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you again for having me. It's always nice to speak about Wollstonecraft. And I've been speaking to Associate Professor Sandrine Burgess about Mary Wollstonecraft. Hope you've enjoyed the program and been given plenty of food for thought. Mm-hmm.